please tag that other podcast in sure. our tweet so we can substitute sure. them. Sure. Yeah, that's going to happen. Um, if you have seen or heard advice. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern. So on the pod today, um, we're going to do a lot of really fantastic things, including we're going to talk about celebrating Thanksgiving. How absolutely wonderful. Favorite time of the year. My eldest's favorite holiday, she said, which was surprising. That's neither here nor there. Um, but today, Jacob is going to bring us something cozy and pop in culture. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Gender, Religious, and Political Ideologies Among Three Generation Families, Implications for Family Conflict. Perfect timing for the celebration of Thanksgiving. And then in Good or Bad Advice, we're going to discuss advice from articles about how to celebrate thanksgiving when you're alone so or or yay or or yay Um, yay. yeah sometimes you you just need to be alone if you have advice you'd like us to talk about send it to us you can email us at attachedpodcast.gmail.com tweet us facebook us Instagram us all at Attached Podcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, uh, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever it is, please rate and review it and don't forget to smash that subscribe button. But before we get to all of that wonderful goodness, uh, Thanksgivingness, um, how are y'all doing? Doing really well out here in Iowa. I don't know if I've told you all that um, when Chelsea and I became parents, we made a commitment to ourselves that we would get massages every month. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a monthly amazing. birthday anniversary? A monthly like like, you know, just like we get a babysitter, we get some time to go do a couple's massage. Oh, it's like a date. Oh, okay. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So it's like we go, our babysitter comes, who's awesome, comes over, hangs out with our little dude. We go to this place called Hands in Harmony, which is amazing. Mm. It's like super oh. like chakra, you know, like they got all like the stuff on the wall. Sure. But my masseuse, who I've been working with now for like, what? How old is Keenan? Oh she's amazing God. her name is nicole and she like you know i have bad shoulders because i broke them she really like makes them feel better but yesterday was our day that we get massages and um she's like have you ever done cupping before i was like no she's like do you want to try it i was like yeah she's like are you okay if it leaves marks i was like i guess yeah it was amazing like cool. my shoulders feel good. I've got all these weird spots on my like chest and shoulder yeah. and back. And Keenan thought they were owies, which was really cute. Aww. But I have no idea the science behind cupping. But if it is placebo, I am definitely feeling 
more That's relaxed. Awesome. I mean, I can't scientifically recommend it, but personally, on a personal level, totally try out cupping if you haven't yet. It's amazing. Very cool. Okay. Cupping. <laughs> <laughs> Just in time it's, for Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's exactly. so weird. Can I just tell you, like, literally, it's like, put the cup and, like, twist it up and it pulls your... It's it's, it's amazing. And then they, like, slide it around. Whew. Yeah. Michael Phelps was super into that, right? Yeah. Olympic swimmers do a lot of that, I think. I think so, too. Yeah. That's what I was thinking as well. But I also... You keep on saying cupping, but isn't that, like, a phrase for, like, cupping your boob? People say that all the time? <laughs> cupping... I know. I've never said cupping my boobs. <laughs> so that's not what it is. You're not like just hanging around cupping your boobs. No. Okay. Well, uh, the science of that is also unclear. I don't know. I just, that's what I keep on thinking about, like, is cupping your boobs. But I don't know where I've heard that from. But maybe that's just something that exists in my mind. Yeah. It's specific to your family. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That and scrambly eggs, huh? Yeah, boob cupping and scrambly eggs, apparently. <laughs> Ooh, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> Woods. I mean, mine is not. Follow that. Follow yeah, that. Sure, sure. We are getting ready to have Thanksgiving outside. We always have oh Thanksgiving gosh. outdoors. It's so gorgeous and warm this time of year, but not super hot anymore. Yeah. And so we like to move the dining room table uh, to the backyard, which sounds super classy. And we just spend a lot of time outdoors. So I that is what I'm looking forward to. I agree with your daughter. Uh, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday as well. So yeah, I'm super excited. I love it a lot. It's a good one. Things are going fantastic here. I say that, but it's not true. Uh, but it's a fine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> We'll power through. Um, but anyway, on a lighter note, I need help with a mystery <laughs> Ooh. from you too. So our youngest is what, like seven months old or something like that, doing a lot of like scooting and stuff like that. When we're doing stuff around the house, he's just, you know, hanging out on the floor with all of his toys, scooting around. My husband goes and sits next to him just to kind of like hang out and talk with the little one, you know, deep conversations that adults and babies have. And he goes, what's spilled? What happened to him? Like, what? He's just been hanging out there. So anyway, the back of his hair was like dried, crusted. It felt like sticky syrup. And then Aww. the back of his jumper had like a wet spot on it. There was no way he was just hanging out. No idea what he got into or where. We asked my five-year-old, did you spell something on him on accident? And he <laughs> said, no. He was like, I didn't do anything. <laughs> Which, you know, 50-50 if that's true. But, like, <laughs> there were also no drinks in the living room. My husband was like, did you, because I was making some pumpkin bread, he was like, did you spill batter on him? I'm like, no. Like, <laughs> it, there would be batter on him if I spilled batter on him. <laughs> no idea. Like, some mystery. What do you guys think it was? Uh, you have cats, right? No, you think a cat peed on him? I don't know. No, I. Was I think just you like, would know if it was if that's what it was. It didn't smell. Ew. You don't have dogs. No, no dogs. Um, no birds. No, no birds. Bees. The bees did it. Yeah, that makes the most sense. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes the most sense. 
Yeah, I, I mean, concur. It was it the was back of his head, so he can't like, and oh. he was on his tummy, so it's not like he could drool on himself to the back. It was the weirdest location. No idea. Anyway, that happened yesterday. We haven't gotten around to giving him a bath yet, but I'll do it today. Don't you worry. Don't you worry, world out there. I take care of my kids. <laughs> it was fine. I mean, it wasn't that bad. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Hmm. So curious. Jacob, what do you have for us this week? When I think about Thanksgiving, Please. I do think about that cozy sense of like being at home. In Iowa, it's always a little bit cold. We may even have snow on the ground. So it really gives that sense of coziness. Yeah. The other night when our little dude didn't want to fall asleep, I said I got up with him and I just needed something in the background so I could like hold him and not fall asleep myself. And I turned on the Discovery Plus network because they were giving me a free trial. I was like, I love watching like home improvement fixer upper yeah. type of shows you're so I mean, handy no that that <laughs> is that is not the case but you know like if you ever watch these shows a lot of them are all like all right it's demo day let's go break shit let's go like do all this and then we're gonna have the grand reveal and that was like that's nice. gonna be a little too much for like this is oh, yeah. this much in the morning so i was scrolling through the discovery plus app and i stumbled upon a show okay. called for the love of kitchens Okay. I can tell you it is like the Great British Bake Off okay. for home remodel. Oh. Very much um, centers in on this couple who have built what is called Duval Kitchens, which they're gorgeous. Oh, they're and, so beautiful. Yeah, oh. they are. Never heard. I mean. English oh, kitchens. Oh, oh, they're so gorgeous. It's like if I could ever afford to have them do my kitchen, yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah. A lot but of money. What I, love about it and i'm guessing sarah you've heard about these default kitchens is they craft everything by hand oh, nice. so even down to the poles Ooh. you know like they have like a person who does metal work and she like pours the stuff in it into the wow. sand and it comes out and then they like make their own tiles what i want to talk about today as it relates to relationships is not like hey go spend like five hundred thousand dollars on a kitchen no. because we would never recommend not, that yeah no we wouldn't rec i mean if you got the means if you can help other people out and still have a $500,000 kitchen, I'm all about it. Yeah. But um, what I like about this show is it has this sense of slowing down, right? And that's one thing I love about Thanksgiving too, is that it's this intentional, okay, we're gonna like cook something today. We're gonna be cozy. We're gonna kind of just like all sit at the table and chat, you know, and that is the vibe you get from this show. You know, I think that our lives have sped up a lot since we just had even one kid, right? Like kids tend to do that. But I found like times when we're able to kind of slow down in the mornings, maybe cook a meal together, sit back, not have anything on the schedule are the times that I really find a lot of joy and happiness in my family. Of course, yeah. I, you know, there's a lot of information and research about that like what can you do to improve your relationships and what should you say and what should you not say and i think sometimes it's just about like taking a step back 
getting a little cozy, slowing down, and just being present with your family, not worrying about, am I doing this right or am I doing this wrong or what does this say or what should I not do? Just kind of being present with the people you love the most. To me, that's what I love about Thanksgiving because it's, you know, uh, for us, it'll be just like five of us gathering together around our kitchen table or around our dining room table and enjoying a meal together. And to me, I think when families and when relationships, when you can do that, it really helps you appreciate the slowness, the presence that can come in relationships. Yeah. I think there's a lot of research around mindfulness right now, and it's a growing body of literature about that being present, acknowledging your emotions in a non-judgmental way is really, really powerful for many people for reducing stress and also improving your relationships quality. I think there's a burgeoning subcategory of like mindful parenting that talks about that. But also there's another body of literature about how important it is to eat a meal around a table with your family and with your kids. So absolutely, research definitely would 100% uh, support the slowing down movement. It also reminds me of that um, idea of uh, Hygge. Uh, it's like a Danish-Norwegian sort of idea. I think it literally is describing what you're describing, Jacob, around the emphasis of being um, cozy and warm and spending time with your family and um, sort of the opposite of uh, how we might typically think of like winter. And uh, it's this really lovely idea about finding, um, I think, sort of mindful moments to be really present and comforted together um, that a friend introduced me to a few years ago because she had spent time in Denmark and I just love it. It's H-Y-G-G-E if you're not familiar and um, I'd Google it. It's such a lovely idea. H Y. G-G-E. I think it's similar to like the English word hug, but it's, mm. I think it's pronounced like Hugo, but I have not spent any time in Denmark. So that's purely from reading about it. There's this other term that I've heard and it, I, it, the translation or something is, it's a similar idea. It's called pants drunk. Um, but I, <laughs> that, that's, it's, <laughs> I, I don't like, know if that's what it's called, but it's what like in the Tennessee show is that I watched. No, oh, no, okay. is that when you get so drunk that stuff drips down your leg and falls on the back of your kid? Baby, baby. <laughs> I was not day drinking. That's what the accusation was. That, that there's oh, like no with day drinking as long as your kids are safe. No, but it's like this similar idea where it's cold outside and you hang out with whoever your loved ones are and you just drink and have fun with them. It's the uh, same. Russell Howard and Greg Davies did an episode about it. It was a lot of fun. That's my experience with it. So I think we've sidetracked from Jacob's main point here. I think it's a great point. And also check out For the Love of Kitchens on Discovery Plus. It's a good way to set the cozy mood, right? Like you're like, oh, do you know what? Let's start a fire. I'm gonna go make some hot chocolate. Honestly, it puts me in that mood and I love it. I love it. Get cozy with your family at Thanksgiving. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled Gender, Religious, and Political Ideologies Among Three-Generation Families, Implications for Family Conflict, recently published in the Journal of Family Relations, just in time for Thanksgiving, written by Casey Gamboni at Northwestern and Elizabeth Waters and Dr. Kayla Reed Fitz at University of Iowa. Interesting place. Jacob heard of it? 
Yeah, can you say that those are two of my former student and my colleague? Oh, how fantastic. That's really cool. These authors explore how ideologies or values and belief systems occur across generations of families and whether having similar or different belief systems are associated with family conflict. So get ready to be triggered, everybody. Here we go. <laughs> the authors specifically focus on three kind of ideologies. First, they look at gender ideologies or beliefs about gender roles and expectations. Given change in societal beliefs about gender roles over time, it's possible that younger generations may have different gender ideologies than their grandparents, for example. Second, the authors explore religious ideologies, which include ideas about morality and meaning and can influence a family's decision about roles and rules in the family. Changes in religious belief systems can occur during emerging adulthood, potentially leading to increased family tension. So emerging adulthood is that time period when you're 18 um, to about maybe the mid to late 20s. The third type of ideology, the authors discuss political ideology and political beliefs, which tend to evolve throughout life and become influenced by much more than just the family. However, family influences on political beliefs are one of the most potent and no longer voting like your parents in adulthood could lead to more disagreements about which side of the aisle is best. The authors point out that gender, religious, and political ideologies tend to actually intersect. For example, younger women tend to hold general beliefs that are more focused on equality and liberal political beliefs, whereas people with evangelical religious ideologies are more likely to identify as a political conservative. And all three are linked to family dynamics, believe it or not. <laughs> so Sarah... Uh, discussions about these kind of core beliefs can get really, really heated. And Thanksgiving is especially a time when three generations around a dinner table can get super political. We've seen lots of popular news coverage about this over the past few years, but less about the science of how this happens. So how did these researchers test the connection between all of these ideologies and family conflict. It's a really very cool study. I really enjoyed reading this one a lot. Um, first, they look for subgroups, uh, profiles of three generation families based on these ideologies, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Then they look at how these ideologies change over time in families, and then also whether it's related to family conflict at all, which is what you just described, Patricia. Um, and they did that using um, a project called the Longitudinal Study of Generations, uh, which I'd actually never heard of before. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, based on how they described it, it is super cool. So it's an eight-wave multi-generational data set that started in 1971 and went to 2005. When it started, their first sort of core sample had grandfathers from approximately 300 three-generation families who were living in Southern California during the early 70s. They added a fourth generation in wave four. Um, so it covers the greatest generation, silent generation, baby boomers, and Gen X. 
so that by mm. the final wave, although they start in Southern California, it spans such a long amount of time, half of these families are living across the country or abroad, um, that relocation is especially driven by uh, boomers and Gen X. Um, so this study that we're going to talk about today uses four waves of data from specifically the second, third, and fourth generations, um, so silent generation baby boomers and Gen X, uh, from waves five through eight. So that's 1994 to 2005. That's over 11 years of time. So they looked, they pulled out individual families, and if a family had more than one grandparent with descendant family members in this data set, they selected which family line, so grandparent, parent, grandchild, they looked at within that family at random to avoid sort of um, choosing specific family lines for any reason. So their study, this study we're going to talk about, looks at 224 three-generation families. What I really like that they point out, right, they're going to look at gender, religious, and political ideologies. They point out that during those 11 years, there were many major gender, religious, and political historical events. And they describe some of these, like the Violence Against Women Act, the impeachment of Bill Clinton, Y2K, September 11th, Catholic Church's sexual abuse cover-up, legalization of same-sex marriage. It was only 11 years, but their list of major events that tie to these ideologies is substantial. So at baseline, these grandparents were on average 66 years old. They were 68% female, 59% had some college education or more. So they were, um, I think, fairly educated sample. Median income uh, of about $18,000. Majority white sample, 39% were Protestant. I think all of those are sort of important details to include because that's sort of the big picture demographics of this group of families that they look at. Parents were on average 42 years. So these are the boomers at baseline. 63% female, far more of them had a college education more, 80%, Mm -hmm. median income, 16,000. Whereas grandkids or these Gen X kids uh, were on average 21 years old, so they're far younger, right, because it's three generations, half female, and uh, 68% had a high school diploma or more, which makes sense. They're younger and still working on that college degree piece. And these are quite young generations too, right? Like just Mm -hmm. over 20 years separating them. Yeah. Um, So what I think is also interesting is this is an older study. So the questions that were asked about any of these ideologies are a little dated. I mean, they're interesting regardless, but the authors do mention that it's a limitation of this study is that, you know, it's an older study. So some of these questions they ask over time are probably not the same kind of questions we would ask now. But regardless, questions they ask about gender role ideology, for example, where like a woman who places more importance on her career than on being a mother is denying her true nature. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah. straight, straight to the point. <laughs> right. Exactly. Around the bush at all. Nope. Nope. When I read them, I was like, this feels important to sort of classify. If I'm saying I strongly agree with this, how conservative those beliefs would be. Um, religious ideology questions uh, assess conservatism primarily uh, reflective of Judeo-Christian beliefs. So, for example, uh, this country would be better off if religion had greater influence in daily life. God exists in the form as described in the Bible, um, which also, I think, aligns with the majority of the sample identified as some version of Judeo-Christian. Political ideology questions assessed political conservatism, for example, of the U.S. should react to answer any challenge to its power anywhere in the world. Um, that was, I think, one of the gentler examples I pulled out. Oh, wow. Um, so then what they did, they assessed conflict across three dyads, right? So you've got three-generation families, and then they looked at each family member's reports of conflict and the conflict between these dyads. So between grandparents and their kids, 
which would be these uh, boomers, parents, yeah. um, between parents and their kids and uh, between grandparents and grandkids. Um, so how much does so-and-so argue with you? How much do you feel your parent is critical of what you do? So uh, really, really interesting because you've got average ideologies for each member of a three-generation family and then looking at conflict between all of them. It's very, very cool. What they did is they tested profiles of families' ideologies. So based on the average ideology scores for each generation within a family, they looked to see what profiles of families there were. And Patricia, I know that this is an approach that you use often. So um, jump in and help me sort of describe what that looks like. Yeah, sure. I love latent profile um, analysis or latent class analysis is another um, like sister statistical analysis. So kind of the 10,000 foot view. So a lot of statistics, we look at kind of like average associations. So how uh, X is linked to Y average. And so it tends to look a lot at like means and averages. So you don't get those outliers so much and what that looks like. So what this type analysis does is it takes these variables and looks at like clusters of them within uh, the data set. So rather than assessing the average political beliefs with the average conflict, this is going to kind of look at those clusters of people within these uh, political beliefs and how the conflict is different within those. So it's much more of um, a person-centered approach to understanding or answering research questions rather than kind of these averages, which can easily wash out interesting findings. Well, and um, they have so many different data points that they're looking at at the same time that they're looking to see if there are specific types of families. And they found that there were three um, so the first type of family uh, they called traditional ideology families, and that's about 24% of their sample. These are families that held moderate traditional gender role ideologies. They were high in religiosity and they had conservative political views. This is across uh, the three generations, actually, because they had similar views between generations in this group. What they found is over time, grandparents had stable ideologies, parents had slight declines in religiosity and political conservatism, and grandkids or the Gen X kids had slight decreases even further in religiosity and political conservatism. But in general, all three generations, very similar and fairly stable over time. Wow. Non yeah, really interesting. So second type of family, non-traditional ideology families. Mm. This is about 27% of their sample. These families held egalitarian gender role ideologies, minimal religiosity, more liberal political ideologies, but it had a boomerang effect is how they described it. So views shifted slightly toward more egalitarian, lower religiosity, and more liberal views from grandparents to their kids, the parents, and then returned to more traditional views between parents and grandkids, um, which is really interesting. That is very interesting. Yes. So over time, a little bit more liberal and coming back towards grandparents. Um, and then the third type was called adapting ideology families. It's about half their sample. These families held moderate egalitarian gender role ideologies. They were somewhat ambivalent in regard to religiosity, slightly conservative political ideologies, but over time, this continued to shift from more traditional ideologies to more liberal across those generations. So whereas the grandparents were sort of similar to traditional ideology families by their grandkids, they are similar to non-traditional ideology families. So across the three generations, they become a little bit more liberal uh, over time. So then how does this look in terms of family conflict? They really only found one difference between these three types of families, which is really interesting. 
Boomer parents and traditional ideology families reported less conflict with their parents, the grandparents, and less conflict with their kids, which are the grandkids in the study, during that second wave than boomers in non-traditional ideology families. So just a reminder, boomers in those non-traditional families moved towards more liberal ideologies, which then shifted back towards Mm. conservatism among their kids. So they're looking a little bit different than either the generation above them or the generation below them. Those adapting ideology families didn't significantly differ in conflict from the other two groups. And what's even more interesting, grandparent and grandchild reports of conflict with those other generations didn't differ across the group. So even when boomer parents in non-traditional families reported more conflict, their parents, the grandparents, and their kids didn't report more conflict. It was just the boomers that perceived it that way, which is really interesting. Um, as I said earlier, they did say a limitation is that some of these measures had some items that skewed towards being racist and sexist and sort of questions we would not language that way anymore. Mm. It is a primarily white sample, but really interesting takeaways. So in half of these families, these Gen X emerging adults had similar ideologies to their grandparents, whether they were traditional or non-traditional. But in general, those ideologies didn't change much over time. They were stable over generations. Those grandkids and traditional adapting families became slightly less religious, but in general, fairly stable uh, and not really extreme differences in beliefs across generations, despite all of this popular news coverage that suggests we are wildly different, that um, this silent generation is always judging these young kids on our front lawn and um, that boomers can't remotely relate to uh, their kids. And I mean, all of this sort of popular news coverage about how different our ideologies are over time um, in a lot of these families they looked quite similar, and they changed not very dramatically. Um, but that's not uncl- a good headline, though, is it? Like, <laughs> no, for sure. Slow, for sure. Slow change among few. <laughs> slow change among few. Oh, I think CNN will definitely pick it up. Um, <laughs> it's unclear how families will communicate about these differences, right? That's not, um, mm. they didn't look at that communication process. Um, so it's interesting when you hear those profiles of families, I don't know if you all, and you don't need to share, but you all or listeners sort of identify with like, oh yeah, I'm, my family's definitely like that, that type of family. Um, but in general, do we avoid discussing beliefs in these areas? I think maybe not necessarily, but do we do that? And I mean, is it even possible to avoid it? Um, but when change is occurring in a family, how does it impact how we connect with each other and Could it especially be impacting boomers, the sandwich generation that struggles with caregiving and um, uh, is now obviously um, experiencing retirement and sort of a next change in this this family life course over time? At Thanksgiving, is it possible to sort of identify that even when there are differences, are there also more similarities? Are we alike in more ways than we are different? I like that reframe. So focusing <laughs> on ways that you are alike versus ways that you are different, because according to this research, it appears that we are, in fact, more similar than different. Yes. Well, I mean, we're millennials, so we're not captured in this study. So no. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'd blow the science up. I'm not really sure. <laughs> in my mind, I'm pretty sure we do. <laughs> but probably science. not. Science. <laughs> it's really cool to hear this paper being discussed because I remember in Kayla's office when I'd go have meetings with her, all of the stuff on the whiteboard related to this and Casey and Elizabeth like spelling out what they were going to do. It's really cool. And I would argue 
post 9-11, we've become more polarized. Um, that potentially that there would be greater sh differences. I, I mean, this isn't a bit very big N of us on the podcast, but I think lots of us would say we have different political ideologies than our parents. And I also think too, this idea of maybe there's not that much difference between generations. I read a really good article about this from the New Yorker. It was this opinion piece of like, whenever you talk about any of these differences between decades or generations, it's really just oversold. It tends to be a smaller sliver of, you know, the kids that are doing these things while, while the majority still kind of follow the parents or the mainstream ideology that's out there. So yeah, cool research out of the University of Iowa, yay Casey, Elizabeth, and Kayla. And um, I love the thought of doing intergenerational research because we right? don't. That's it's really so cool. cool. It's very, very cool. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationship from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social medias, those medias of the social, the blogs and in some cases, vlogs, <laughs> and numerous top 10 lists on all of the Reddits and various places like that. We are really cool here at the podcast, but a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships, believe it or not. This is the part of the show when we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. On a side note, I was listening to another podcast earlier this morning. Oh, boy. I know. And they were talking about <laughs> advice, relationship advice. And they asked the people, what are your credentials? And they all laughed and said, we have no credentials, except we each have a podcast <laughs> saying oh. that we give advice. So I just want to point out that, yes, indeed, we do have a podcast uh, giving advice, but we also have credentials. <laughs> <laughs> Please tag that other podcast in sure. our tweet so we can subtweet sure. them. Sure. Yeah, that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> if you have seen or heard advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook at attachpodcast or go to attachpodcast.com and send us a message. Today, we're talking about Thanksgiving. We've talked over the years. Um, about a lot of different advice for Thanksgiving uh, family gatherings. But what about those who can't be with family, either because of work schedules, economic limitations, maybe COVID, strained relationships, or whatever the reason may be? So we are going to review two different articles today. Uh, this is not academic articles. These are our wonderful website um, articles about advice uh, going solo during Thanksgiving. Are you guys ready? Let's do it. Okay. So first up is an article called How to Cope When You Are Alone on Thanksgiving. One, accept being alone. Accepting being alone doesn't necessarily mean staying home and feeling lonely. There are many things you can do on Thanksgiving that puts you in the company of people or connect you with people while you're still alone. So they include things like 
Maybe you travel to a someplace alone. Maybe you write letters. Maybe you decide to become a sports fan and you watch a lot of stuff. And maybe you're productive that time. So there are a lot of examples of ways that you can accept being alone and things that you can do. Also get outdoors. They say you could people watch. So what do you think? Good or bad advice about how to cope with being alone? Accept being alone. I'm going to take a little roundabout pathway to get to my decision on this. First, I don't think necessarily that people have to accept being alone. Some people like to be alone. Some people might prefer not having a whole bunch of people around them. And if they want that cozy sense of what I was talking about earlier, sometimes that means taking a step back from relationships, right? I do like the fact that they talked about the difference between being alone and being lonely, right? Because you can be in a relationship and still be lonely. I've worked with lots of couples where one or both partners feel really lonely, even though there's a lot of people, including each other, in their orbit. So setting that aside, setting that aside that like people may just want to be alone and that's okay. I think that wanting some alone time is good and healthy. If you're kind of like, I would rather be with friends and family at Thanksgiving and it's not possible, I think this is good advice. I think that finding ways to maybe like, okay, I want to do something that, you know, I wish I could be here, but because I can't, I'm going to go and try to engage in something else. It might be a new experience. It might be something that may be fun. It might be going to a bar to watch the Cowboys and whoever always plays on Thanksgiving. Um, (laughs) I don't necessarily like the idea of being productive, like meaning like, okay, well, I'm not going to visit family and friends, so I'm going to work today. I think that's bad advice. But overall, you know, if you would rather be with people on Thanksgiving and that's not an option, find a way to engage in your community or to do something that Um, allows you to feel that sense of of connectedness, regardless of what that is, I think is good advice. So overall, good advice. Okay, good advice from Jacob. Sarah? Yeah, I think good advice. I do think it's important what Jacob's saying, this distinction between um, people who maybe don't want to be alone, like wish that they could be with friends and family and otherwise can't be. Um, Because I think people who wish to be alone probably don't need too much advice about like how to cope with that, like telling them to go outside and like people watch, it feels, feels very odd. Um, it feels a little like um, promoting, uh, watching other people have a good time and just like pining over that. And But what came to mind for me when you describe that, Patricia, is um, the science behind volunteering. So some mm. people find uh, like volunteering around Thanksgiving to be something that they either do consistently or if they're not able to be with other people is a really nice alternative to be with people even if they're not your people and to be doing some service and we know from the science around volunteering it has powerful benefits for your mental health and your physical health um people who volunteer have less depression they have greater life satisfaction just general better mental well-being and there's a benefit for mortality that people who volunteer have um, a benefit for survival over time. It's a pretty powerful way to spend your time if you can't be with the other people that you might prefer to be, is what came to mind when you were describing that. Yeah, so good advice, but really uh, only for people who are alone and wish maybe they weren't. For people who are alone and they're happy about it, this feels weird type of advice to give them (laughs) is what I'm reading. But overall, I think we're agreeing that this is um, good advice to accept being alone. Number two is find companions. And I think this is gonna 
kind of drift into what you guys have already said. So even if you are alone on Thanksgiving, that doesn't mean you can't reach out to others. The best way to do this is often to put others' needs ahead of your own. Who else might be lonely this time of year? Who else is wishing they had a companion? When you can answer those questions, you will have found a way to ease your own loneliness. So the ways that you can do this, they recommend volunteering like you just said, and also get in touch with others who are alone are ways to find companions. Good or bad advice? So I am going to say good advice based on the research Sarah just cited around volunteerism and based on how we know that creating new relationships can sometimes make it so you can build a network of social support if you're far away from family. I think that can be all really great. What I don't like is this expectation that in order to find a companion, um, weird use of that word, but in order to find a companion, you have to put your other people's needs before your own. Um, I think that kind of sets up like this zero sum game in relationships, which I don't think is healthy, but overall, right? If you want to create a social support network because you can't visit friends and families, I think that's good advice. So good advice from Jacob, uh, with the caveat that obviously we're not putting other people's needs in front of our own in this regard specifically, um, good advice. Woods. I think this is good advice. I also think sometimes it's okay to put other people's needs above your own meaning. I'm not sure it is really above your own needs when you're focusing on what other people may need or benefit from. Uh, meaning loneliness, if that's something we're experiencing, is an emotion for a reason, right? It drives us toward social connection. If we are thinking about other people who are also lonely and thinking about could we connect with them because it would help them, we also know from the science on pro-social behavior and thinking about taking care of other people and sort of meeting their needs also, it can have benefits for our mental health, right? If pro-social behavior decreases our stress, improves our mental health and well-being, and loneliness exists for a reason. So thinking about who else we could connect with that mm. may also benefit from that connection is an interesting reframe that I think probably aligns with science. Okay. So we're saying good advice. And also we are potentially removing that caveat saying that there is some <laughs> evidence that putting people's needs above your own temporarily, not like exclusively, it's particularly in this instant, help you find or at least brainstorm ways to think of how to form those connections. So you're thinking of people who might be in a similar situation as you um, and then looking to find those people to make those connections. I, I do wonder if it was just a poor use of words in this particular because I, I like the idea of being intentional about um, how you're making connections and how you're making friends. It's a really good advice that you guys are definitely picking up on that friendships don't always just happen to you, no. you know, and knowing that there are steps that you can take being intentional to try and make those friendships, finding people who might have similar interests and needs as you could be a good way to reduce that loneliness that you're feeling around the holidays. The last one from this article is plan for the future. 
Perhaps you turned down invitations to dinner this year because of your anxiety. Make a promise to yourself that next year will be different. A year is plenty of time to get control of your anxiety and reconnect with people in your life. If all else fails and you still find yourself lonely on Thanksgiving, simply try to make it through the day. Remember that it's only one day out of the year and that it will be over before you know it. Make a vow to yourself to get help for your anxiety so that it doesn't interfere with making plans for next Thanksgiving. Good or bad advice? This took kind of a hard turn for me because this sounds like we're veering more into like social anxiety, agoraphobia territory. Maybe yeah. not clear over there, but um, if you are struggling with anxiety, um, first off, yes, definitely seek out professional help. Also, you don't have to say, okay, if it's a year from now, I'm going to have it all together. That's not how anxiety works. That's not how wellness works. That's not how health works. There can be a lot of flexibility. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs in dealing with anxiety. I do like the framing of, you know what, this is just one day and it's okay if I can't be present on this one day because I'm feeling anxious. I like that framing. What I don't like about this advice is the Okay, so next year you're gonna have it all together. That expectation may not be met for a variety of reasons. Um, and so instead of creating a time point to when you will be well, it's about taking those steps to start that journey and not putting a timeline on it. So in general, the foundation of this advice is if somebody is really struggling with anxiety, to go and seek help and to work towards being able to create those connections if you want them is good advice but please don't give yourself a timeline. Don't say I'm gonna be well by Thanksgiving 2022 and if I'm not, I failed. Because anxiety, especially if we're talking about chronic, really intense anxiety, which a lot of people struggle with, isn't just something that can magically go away in a year. Sometimes you're gonna struggle with it for a very long time and learning to adapt and cope with that can be very difficult. So. Overall, good advice with that caveat of don't put that pressure on yourself. Right. Good advice, especially the idea of kind of de-emphasizing the importance of that day, but also take away the recommendation to putting a timeline that I will be okay by next Thanksgiving. Maybe instead um, commit to taking one step towards um, getting control of your anxiety. Woods, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I definitely agree with Jacob. I similarly think it's good advice so long as you don't put a timeline. I can't quite think of anything more stressful for somebody with no. anxiety than putting a one-year uh, time limit on when I will be healed and uh, performing at the level that I uh, wish that I could. Um, I also think uh, if loneliness is sort of the driving factor or sort of maybe, um, I think maybe based on this advice, the way you read that, Patricia, uh, anxiety about being able to spend um, time with people uh, is contributing to that loneliness. Part of the work may be on, on reducing sort of that stress and anxiety that may then in turn, right, make it easier to connect with other people. Um, that loneliness piece that they're sort of describing, it sounds like throughout this advice has, again, really powerful effects on your mental and physical health. Um, and when we feel less connected and more isolated, that is more stressful and that's what makes our health outcomes worse. But um, sometimes it's not quite so easy to 
build new connections, as you described, Patricia, especially sometimes in adulthood. Um, so starting on that anxiety piece and, and reducing stress and reducing sort of unrealistic expectations about how we should be able to be in relationships with other people may be a really important step that protects our health and well-being while we then sort of learn how to connect to the people that we otherwise might want to be more connected to. So good advice. And one thing in particular is attempting to reduce those stressors and those expectations we have on our own self uh, to perhaps uh, change and take steps in a direction that we want to to help reduce our loneliness. And I think you also bring up a really important point that loneliness that um, we can feel does impact our mental health and also our physical health. Um, as well. So a little bit of a turn. We're going to go to the next article. 12 things to do if you're celebrating Thanksgiving solo. Um, So this is a little bit more about actionable things that we can do. So first up is put together a really fun menu. If you're planning to cook something on your own all alone uh, for Thanksgiving, Make it something fun. Maybe you've been worried about trying a new complicated recipe. Well, today's the day. Maybe you're looking to recreate a comforting classic to perk you up a little bit on that day um, that you wouldn't normally spend alone. Fair game. Do that. So first advice is put together a really fun menu. If you like to cook, good advice, right? If this is something that brings you happiness and you have the day off, um, from work and you're still riding solo for Thanksgiving, yeah, do it. Like, if you don't like to cook, though, don't. Like, it's not like, <laughs> like, if, if cooking's going to make you miserable, don't do it. But if you like to do that, I think that's great advice. All right. So potentially great advice, especially if your wheelhouse of interest is already within food. Woods? Yeah, I'm not really sure what the science would say yeah. about this. Um, but Hobbies, I, I maybe? Hobby that... research? <laughs> Hobbies. Um, it makes me think about like uh, research on um, how we talk about food and weight gain. <laughs> I'm not really sure that's what their point is here. No. Uh, so I think if their point is sort of self-care and that this is something you would enjoy, um, sure. This sounds like good advice. Okay. Sounds like good advice, though we're not really sure where the uh, science comes menu from. Menu science. Sure. Menu science. <laughs> Pretty sure that's not a thing. Uh, but Nutrition. it might be. Who knows? Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the next one is ignore it all together. Hey, a solo Thanksgiving means it is up to you. If you prefer to just ignore the day altogether instead of celebrating it in literally any way whatsoever, uh, we're here to support you. Do whatever you want. There's no rules this year. Good or bad advice? I'm going to put this in the context of like, I think sometimes when... You know, it may be that sometimes these family holidays, when they're kind of like Thanksgiving, we think about bringing the family together, can be overwhelming, right? Like you can have a lot of connections, you can have conflict, you can have all of that. So if you're opting out and kind of doing something solo, I think it's great to say like, you know what, I don't want to celebrate, I want a day off. And if a day off is like, I'm going to go find a place where I can sit by a pool and sip a drink, Great. That's a great way to celebrate Thanksgiving. That sounds appealing to me sometimes, right? But um, I, I think that it just kind of depends on, again, like, what is the purpose of the holiday? What's the purpose of being solo, right? If you're choosing that and you're saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to opt out of this. This is what I want to do. Great. If you're not choosing that, 
Is not celebrating that going to hurt more? Could you incorporate technology to zoom in the people you love and say, hey, let's cook together. Let's celebrate this solo but separately. I think there's a lot of ideas in there and this could potentially be a good one. I mean, so to me, good advice. Good advice from Jacob Woods. I mean, I also think that there's some uh, concerning history around Thanksgiving. Uh, so if altogether it's not something that you want to celebrate just in general because of the history of how uh, we've treated Native Americans in this country and that we tend to ignore that when talking about Thanksgiving altogether. Um, also, uh, totally fine to <laughs> yeah. not want to celebrate this holiday, whether or not you're alone. Uh, it also makes me think of research that suggests that um, single people are not necessarily uh worse off than people who are partnered or um, uh, in large extended families, right? That the frame of this advice is like, it's fine. You're going to be fine. Like, it's, <laughs> if that's what you want to do, there's no rules. I'm not sure those people thought there was necessarily rules before, but uh, tax benefits maybe, but um, <laughs> but in general, so that's what's coming up for me are those two different pieces of uh, some of the myths, the American myths around what we mm. celebrate for Thanksgiving. And maybe it's not always something people want to celebrate anyways. And also single people don't necessarily have it all bad, which is another problematic yeah. narrative in this country. Good advice. Celebrate it however you want. Also including ignoring it altogether for whatever your rationale is. Um, and, you know, I think always important to acknowledge kind of the cultural and historical impacts that we feel about um, certain things. I think is really, really important. Last one we're going to pull from this article is drop treats off for friends, family, or neighbors. Just because you aren't gathering with anyone this year doesn't mean you can't still include them in your day. Love to bake? Make some extra pies or other Thanksgiving treats for friends, families, or neighbors and leave your treats on their door. It'll brighten their day for sure and might make yours a little bit happier and more fun as well. Good or bad advice? We celebrate Christmas in our family. We didn't go anywhere for Christmas because of COVID last year. And we don't live close to family around here. But we've got a lot of great friends. And we have a tradition of baking Christmas cookies. And we decided to wrap them up and leave them on people's doorstep. And then call them when we were on the phone and wave at them as they got them. Right? And for us, it was a great way to celebrate the holiday in a very unique circumstance. So I know this is geared toward people who are spending Thanksgiving solo, but I think, again, if this is something you like to do, like we love to make cookies, I love to eat cookies, and I love to make cookies, uh, I think it's great advice. So yeah, go for it. And if you're my friend and you want to drop off some cookies at my house, I would, I would love that. <laughs> So good advice, just because you're celebrating solo doesn't mean that you can't incorporate other people that live near you in some way. Woods, what are you thinking? Good or bad advice? Yeah, I think good advice too. Um, I hear some of that same uh, research that we had discussed earlier in terms of this pro-social behavior, doing things for others, volunteering, um, gift giving, those things can bring us happiness. And especially if we're feeling lonely, but even if we're not, um, we can sort of increase our own mental well-being, let alone those of the people around us that we are helping to take care of. Also, I think gratitude is a really um, important uh, piece of relationships that, you know, tends to 
um, be discussed at this time of year, uh, Thanksgiving yeah. and gratitude. There is lots of really good research to suggest that gratitude also has um, benefits for our mental health, but also for our relationships that when we express that we're grateful for somebody else um, and we're grateful for what they've done for us and how they have helped to take care of us um, that it can benefit the relationship and have um, improved sort of our connection and our satisfaction with that relationship. So if giving gifts and baking extra pies is also a way that you show gratitude to your friends and family this time of year, what a lovely way that I science would suggest is a nice, easy uh, boost to everybody's happiness. Yeah. A harvest of happiness. Oh my, a harvest of happiness here. Good advice. A harvest of happiness. I absolutely love it. We hope you all have a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving and celebrate it safely and in whatever way you want to, or you know what? Don't celebrate it at all. That's totally fine. So as always, thank you for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or get at us on all those social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.